0: the easiest rule to get stuck in is that it's somebody else's responsibility to fix the problems that you see. I always have this saying that if if I should, I could and if I could, I will. It's like, if I, if I can fix a problem because I have the tools, then I should fix the problem. And so I will fix the problem because it's my responsibility. And I think we need more people that just take that proactive approach to it. Like it's, it's too easy to click like and sign a online petition and, you know, forward a meme about what we hate, or what we miss, or what we want. Every one of us has the ability to shape the world around us. And I think more people need to break that rule that it's up to other people to do it. If you leave it to other people to do it, then you got to live
1: in the world that they define for you. And you can't complain about it, but so many people do. Welcome to the Rebel Rules Podcast. I'm your host, Yuri, in Singapore, and I want to learn from the rebels, rule breakers, innovators, and shit stirrers around the world. I want to find out what makes them tick. How do they do what they do? And then I want to share that with you so you can feed the rebel within. The Rebel Rules! Hey, so there we are, episode three of season one of the Rebel Rules Podcast. How's it going so far? I don't know whether you've listened to any of the other episodes, but hey, we're just getting started, getting getting my feet wet and I'm enjoying it. Like I'm, uh, I'm finding out that it's quite different from video making. I've been creating videos for quite a while now. You can head over to YouTube and find my channel called The Magic Sauce, where I talk a lot about creativity, innovation, breaking rules, and how do you facilitate that and I give people simple tools to navigate the murky waters of innovation. So go check those out. And if you like to watch these podcasts, because I record all of them on video as well, usually a couple days after I launch these podcasts, they'll be up on my YouTube channel as well in a video file. You can watch me as I stumble over words. And yeah, 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 just part of the game. So head over to The Magic Sauce on YouTube. So let's get into the episode. Last week, I talked about Richard Branson. This week, we've got Richard Brubaker. Here's how I would describe Richard. If you were to take... Mission-driven entrepreneurship, social challenges, innovation, and Asia. You put that in, in, in a blender and you shake it really, really hard with a bit of ice on it. Out will come Richard Brewbaker. Richard has been in Asia for about 20 years and spends most of his time inspiring and engaging and equipping those around him to take the first step and to tackle challenges that they see around them. He has been part of more than 200 projects focusing on social, environmental, and economic challenges that are faced in Asia. In other words, he knows who he's talking about. He's got some great thinking, some great ideas, and it was an absolute pleasure to have him on this episode of the podcast where we talk about entrepreneurship, mission-driven entrepreneurs or not. I ask a bit about, is this for everybody? Can everybody learn how to do it? We talk a bit about the role of China and the potential future role of China, and how a lot of people are putting China in the wrong light. And we talk a lot about taking initiative. This year has shown us that a lot of these structures that we have around us are not working and they need to be challenged, they need to be changed. And I don't think we can rely on the incumbents to do that for us. What we need is people to grab the bull by the horns. And I wanted to understand what entrepreneurs are doing right now, where some of the opportunities are and where some of the challenges are. And I thought there's no better person to talk to than Richard. So let's get right into this episode of The Rebel Rules. Hey there, Richard. What's going on in the US? Mate, it's pandemic lifestyle.
0: Pandemic um, lifestyle. Yeah, I'm in New York City, man, so it's pretty quiet actually to be up, up here right now. So I'm actually up in Queens, just doing my thing.
1: And what is your thing? Because, uh, because you're, you're, you're a social social entrepreneur, social innovator. What, what, what does that mean?
0: Short story long, uh, I spent the last 18 years in China um, trying to figure out how does urbanization work. I mean, that's just the easiest way I can say it. Where does it fail? What can you do? And just getting involved wherever I could. So my definition of a social innovator is just like someone who's kind of mission-driven. You see environment, economy, social, community needs, and you just kind of point your boat toads that. It could be a profit, nonprofit. I don't really care. You could be in a big company. You could be starting your own thing. It doesn't really matter. It's just kind of, a, yeah, I call it mission-driven entrepreneurship now. So that's kind of what I've been focused on and I've been building charities and building agencies and I've got a software thing that I'm working on now and just constantly trying to, to pick up a hammer and drive a nail through a wall.
1: Well, we met about 12 years ago in Shanghai, right? Yeah, I think so. We met 12 years ago when I was with, uh, with the innovation agency. What were you doing then? You were still teaching? I actually had a market
0: research and uh, sourcing companies back then. And I had this community of CSR professionals, socially minded people and I was kind of doing like you know movies and talks and lunches you know it wasn't a a job and there wasn't a company yet there wasn't any monetization strategy and the 2008 earthquake hit and I think around that time Mm -hmm. I think we probably met like nine months or a year after that because I was doing you know big projects working with Disney at the time I was like, I'm, I'm done, man. Like after this, after this uh, earthquake, I need to take the charitable work that I'm doing and create a business around it. Um, and so I actually started this new business and it ended up being, I want to say about two years later, called Collective Responsibility, which is the agency that I have now in Shanghai. What I was doing was very similar to what I'm doing now. I had charity. I had a for-profit consulting. But at the time, I was also a professor at the Chenier Business School teaching uh, sustainability and responsible leadership. That was like in 2009 when I started that. And I did that for about seven, eight years before I shifted it out, so. Can, can you teach that? You know, it's not like when you're teaching corporate finance and someone go put into practice a, a specific formula in a, an Excel spreadsheet and make a million dollars. But yes, you can. You can inspire the people that you are teaching to think a little bit differently. And this is always a struggle I had in a business school. Um, at the time, I was one of the first handful of professors teaching this, probably in Asia. Uh, we, we actually, I flew in the Copenhagen during that, during that uh, COP15, and we had an academic conference. And the way that I had structured it, like everyone in the world was trying to figure out, like, wow, you're doing like consulting projects, and that's really interesting. So I had to constantly find ways to prove value. and. In the short term, what I found was it's very hard. Like the, the students that I had like in my pocket on my side was like maybe 10%. And then a solid like 60% would listen to me and it was up to me to convert them. The other 30 just fucking hated me. Like I was just never going to win them over. But of that 60, the idea was like, look, just plant seeds for, for later. And like, look, you can find a job in a corporation working for Pepsi or for Apple computer or whatever. And you can find an issue that the company is struggling with. And you can use this lens of sustainability as a strategic kind of layer to what you're already doing. Like you don't have to shift your whole focus and become an environmentalist. I was never preaching that. And what I found was kind of after I left within a few years, I was getting pings from my students. So my first year, then my second year, my third year, and I was starting to see their LinkedIn, you know, kind of job titles change to more about, Healthcare and clean energy and social entrepreneur and and it, what i started to see was like yeah it takes about five eight years for those seeds to plant and then for kind of the soil to take hold because you know they had to go pay off their loans they had to satisfy their their family's need to see them in corporate finance or whatever and then, and then once they were secure enough then they'd make a shift and yeah i mean it, it took some time but you know all, all the hard battles do
1: yeah, but, but that's awesome that, well, first of all, that a couple of years later, you can see the results of mm. kind of, like you said, the plants you've been, been seeding. What's yeah. also interesting is you said, you know, people need to meet their initial needs first, like paying off their student loans, looking after yeah. family. I think for a lot of people, maybe like buying a house or getting settled, settled down. To be a social innovator, do you need to have all the, uh, in- let me rephrase that. Do you need enough money to be one? You shouldn't. But what I, find I, I, I agree, I agree, but you, but you and I shouldn't. both know there's a couple of people who are like, well, you know, I'm going to be, into, I'm going to be a social entrepreneur, but that's because all the other bases are covered. So
0: this is where I get into it with a lot of people I know, uh, in a sense, like the, re- the reality is that social entrepreneurship is no different than actual entrepreneurship. Like, you're just solving a problem that's kind of personal to you and it aligns to environmental, social, you know, economic or community kind of challenge that's faced. Now, the early days of social entrepreneurship was often, and still is in many areas, more about the story of the entrepreneur's transformation from being traditional entrepreneur to social and how they're now converted, different, better, enlightened, and less about the actual impact of the individual or the organization. Now, what that did was it brought in a lot of people early on, let's just say 2004 to 2005. 12. I don't actually know why I picked those numbers, I just did. Um, and they tended to already have found a measure of success as a corporate you know, raider, as an entrepreneur, or they had a family background that allowed them or family support that they didn't have to worry about the money. Because that story gave them that next layer of their legacy. Now that's, that wasn't everyone, but what, it was, what I found was those were the leading stories. And that drew in the next crowd of say impact investors who are bankers looking for a better, like to feel a little bit better, to find some new investments that, you know, hedge their bets a little bit. But what I'm finding and what I found through the, in, the interviews that you know, are on my YouTube channel is, the ones that have the most grit, the most resilience, the best ideas and are starting to find the most scale tend not to come from that circle. They tend to be very resourceful in the lack of resources. They tend to be very scrappy, uh, very frugal. They understand the community. They understand the problem in a way that's just, it's very personal to them. And that is kind of where the wheat and the chaff separate is, you know, you can come with all these resources and this background and this comfort, but what I find is that if you do and you build a business around solving discomfort, you're going to struggle. And also it's going to be more about you and your team is going to separate from you. The most successful ones, the ones I know that are scaling the fastest right now are the ones who are doing quite well, even in this time. It's because they just have a real clear idea what the problems are and, you know, they're they're aligned to them um, pretty clearly. So, you know, it helps to have more money always, but I won't say you have to have it to succeed or to build an organization or to have an impact.
1: So this year big big mm. black swan event unprecedented and of our generation yeah of our generation this is probably the, the biggest thing we'll have right this is like the biggest most yeah, impactful. we hope, <laughs> <laughs> we hope. <laughs> Fuck it. an asteroid could come in three years right <laughs> like you don't know covid's up no more mask what is that in the sky yeah. it's an unprecedented year filled with yeah. opportunities filled with challenges depends on how you want to see them Yep. Like, are, are, we seeing, are we seeing more entrepreneurs pop up? Uh, is everybody keeping quiet? Because it feels like a lot of people are fighting not to lose rather than fighting to win this year. What are you seeing? That's a good way of putting it.
0: So first off, the way I look at it is we are just starting on this path. Uh, the next 18 months to five years could be an absolute shit show economically as we try to recover from the COVID ripples. And this is what I've actually been spending the last, let's call it three months really thinking through is, you know, I'm in the U S right now, but we could be talking about Asia as well. Poverty is on the rise because jobs are being lost at an unprecedented rate. I mean, it, it's far eclipsing the great economic financial destruction of 2007 to 10, you know, in Thailand, there's already soup kitchens all over Bangkok in america there's mile long lines just to get into a food bank we're going to start seeing real challenges with our healthcare system our education system is going to need to convert to get new jobs like all these things are happening oh yeah by the way we're having race riots in america and we're having political unrest in probably a half of the southeast asian nations it's gonna be really tough and for me what i keep coming back down to is like the role of the city is going to shift and how people perceive success is going to shift And we need to really be very clear about the problems that people are facing. And then, unlike any other time, scale the solutions in a way that I've never seen. And so I'm really struggling, like, one, what are the challenges going to be? What are these ripples that are going to be the big ones that we need to worry about? Who is already working on that at the big thinky-thinky level, as well as at the potential to scale at a large level? And then where can I insert myself either collaborating with someone who's already there or building something that needs to be built. At no time in our lifetime have I, what I would say is social entrepreneurship, social innovation, mission-driven entrepreneurship, that is going to be an amazing opportunity for the next 10 years. I mean, it's, it's gonna bring everything that we talked about to scale. Future of healthcare, future of education, future of jobs, everything to scale. And it's good and bad, it's gonna to be tough, but I think there's just an amazing opportunity to rebuild things that were broken.
1: I have a feeling we will have to rely on entrepreneurs more than look at what we've seen over the last so many times. It it won't be the government. It it won't be, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of times it won't be big corporate that might be funding some initiatives, but I think it's going to have to come from a a community level and it will come from entrepreneurs who are ready to, you know, grab the bull by the horns and, 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 and and break out of that and come up with solutions that are, uh you know big or small but that are really going to drive the world the world forward and and solve some of these problems in the next couple of years you know again i don't really have
0: great answers i kind of i look at it like you know i think that there's gonna be fewer people employed by the corporate economy yeah i think there'll be more opportunities for individuals to be entrepreneurs for sure but i worry about how many people will just be totally disconnected and for one reason or another be it they get they get comfortable on the couch or they hmm. just cannot get themselves up because they're living out of the trunk of a car cannot get back in the game because you know, I, I like, they, they,
1: they fall too far behind is that what you mean
0: or they're just so disconnected and they they don't know how to get back in the game yeah it's, they've fallen too far behind um or they're happy with like living in a in a really rough situation um or they start to revolt I think that the, the populations of kind of like that wall street, to main street, it's like, hmm. yeah, we're starting to figure out that, you know, like with the top five American, most wealthiest people, they own more, the same level of assets, to the next hundred million people. It's not even about tax the rich, it's t- tax the richest, five guys, you know, like that's it, but that won't solve the problems either. But when you start to think about like, how will those hundred million people feel at the bottom? For so long, and is entrepreneurship an answer for them to get out of that place? I think those are questions that are that need to be like really explored a lot more.
1: Yeah, and I think look, I wanted this podcast to be about people who are stirrers, rule breakers, people who do things a bit differently. And I think right now is a perfect time for it because we've seen a lot yeah. of the systems don't work, a lot of the the, the the things that we've been promised is not working. And I yeah. think to those rules, in my opinion, they're always made by by the ones in power, by the leading sports team, by the right. leading organization, by this and this and this. But to get out of that and, and to break through that, you need people who are willing to piss a couple of people off and people who are willing to break uh, break those rules. How much more important is that this year? I've got a feeling that this is this is the year for people to stop being yeah. quiet and get up and, and, and change. How do you see that?
0: I think there's two ways to stand up and, and do this. And one is that you do it literally with Molotov cocktails and the other one is you do it with businesses or business models where you're like being productive at solving the problem and i think that we definitely need more people who go out on the streets and talk to these people who are just enraged or in help of health care or, or in need of healthcare or in need of education and work out how to help them versus just take all that anger and Mm -hmm. You know, go the other way with it. And I also think that the economics for this will never, I mean, it's probably the best time ever. Like, we're now buying much more local as it is. We're now talking about support our communities. We're now talking about all these things that really mean things to us in a very different way than the last, say, 50 years of economics has been pushed on us. Now, I don't know where that transition is. And actually, I've been looking at this a little bit as like, are we going towards a like a fair, balanced, blah, blah, like, okay, what does that look like? Away from just pure corporate capitalism. Somewhere in there, I think, is an amazing role for entrepreneurs to build businesses that, you know, the cash flow might come from your gov- your local government where you're helping them solve a problem. It might come from micropayments from the, the poor who only have a dollar a day. It might come from the people who've been who used to make $60,000 but couldn't make their house payment and now have a little bit to, to support that community it could, you're gonna to have to be much more open to where you get your money and the value proposition than ever before and i think yeah it's a great time because the world definitely needs a lot more productive people to get back in the game and to fix these problems
1: you on your youtube channel uh richard mm. brubaker on youtube we'll put links below uh this podcast you talk to some of the Top people in the world who are a rebel mm-hmm. in their own field because they've taken a, an assumption, a rule or a challenge and they flipped it on, on its head. Yep. H- how many of those conversations have you had and what have you learned from them?
0: To date, I focused really only on Asian-based mission-driven entrepreneurs yep. because yep. I felt, first off, that they were not being covered in the grand scheme of social I agree. entrepreneurship. It was very white, very Western Europe. But I, in total, I've talked to about 90, uh, I think. We've covered every challenge, we've covered every form of entrepreneurship from every age of entrepreneur. Yeah, at least about 90 people.
1: And what, what are some of the big lessons in, in terms of what are they yeah. doing that, that that people can learn from? I think the
0: first one is they're just really clear on the problem. They're really clear on what it is they're trying to achieve, the vision for change, um, and then the mission that they're on. The second one is probably depends on if you're a first or like a, a third-time entrepreneur. If you're a third-time entrepreneur, you're really well aware of what it's gonna take to get that get that done, to make that change. First-time entrepreneurs tend to be a little bit naive about that. They think like, oh, I can just, if I can just get 1% of the market, or if I can just get this done, right? Um, but they end up having real grit. Uh, they're able to really grind through the challenge. Um, when they stand up, a lot of people will not tr- believe in them. They, they will have to prove literally every single day that they are not insane. And that also that they're not fighting the person that they want to change. So it's often like, well, I'm an environmentalist. Well, I'm a capitalist and we must battle each other out. The most effective ones are actually able to see the problem and be able to bring others along with them. And that starts with their team, obviously, I think. But it's also with their clients and the other stakeholders like, I'm really, especially in this time, appreciating the role of being you know, able to, to work with others as being a huge success factor. Um, I think particularly going forward, because you won't be able to travel as much. You won't be able to build your business as you did before. Um, you're going to have to collaborate at a much higher level. I think they're also quick to adapt. Things don't move well. Test, 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 iterate, iterate, iterate. And they're not emotional about their losses. Uh, I think they look at everything as a work in progress. And they have that long-term vision for change versus that. I want to win at the end of this year. I want that award at the end of two years. I want to have this much funding in my A round. They're just like, I just want to solve the problem. And it's a big problem. And it's going to take forever. And I'm not going to worry about the little losses. And high tolerance for pain. You know, it, it is very hard work. I don't, I don't, that's not, any different for normal for other entrepreneurs. Um, but in this space, it's particularly hard because in a lot of like in China, nonprofits, it's a very tightly controlled space. They don't they don't really want people there as a foreign nonprofit. Um, but if you want to be there, you can be there, but it's gonna take a long time, persistence, collaboration, you know, adaption, and just put up with the pain that comes along with it. Like don't moan and groan because you signed up for it. Um, so you have to have a real high, high tolerance. Um, for that, but if I look at like the unique people, the ones that are breaking out, like they—they're just so clear and they never wavered in a long-term vision, and they just looked at every single day as one more step towards it, even if they kind of turned around and walked backwards and called that like a, a reboot. We're—we're we're not all using GPS. Some of us still use a compass and a map, and occasionally we get off path. But the idea is, we know where the summit is. We're just gonna got to keep tacking
1: at it, um, and you'll get there. How much more do you need to 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 like- be an entrepreneur in a place like China, because there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunities, but there's also a lot of things that that might be holding you back. What what is what is the extra edge Uh, you need to 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 do this in China?
0: I don't know. I I wasn't an entrepreneur before I got to China. I work for big companies. You know, so, so I have a good friend of mine, and he and I will have burgers every once in a while. And he's like, "Rich man, if you could do what you did in China, in a country where they actively hated you." right? And he doesn't mean like the people, but like Mm. they don't want, I think that China is very open to anyone with ideas that help them on their path. You have to learn how to work within a system that is sensitive, right? Like you can't say certain things, but you can have conversations around it and still get the work done. They would much rather hear it from internals because those people know how to say it in a way that where no one loses face. I mean, there's all kinds of nuances to that. I think a lot of foreigners that come in into this exact same space that fail is because they come out of, say, San Francisco or London or wherever. They're like, I have this amazing product that you need. Like, you know nothing about me. You don't know where my education system is failing, where my healthcare system is failing. Like, how could you possibly help me? I think that's where failure happens more often than not. Uh, but for long-term expats that I know, by and large, they, they've got a really good read on the country because they view themselves as part of that environment. If you can make it in Shanghai in social innovation and sustainability, I, I think it's the it was the best place to be because everything was going wrong for so many years. And to watch how the stakeholders came together to see a government go from eh to whoa, you know, and from companies go from whatever to wow big market and everyone wanted to figure this stuff out like the next 25 years it's going to be somewhat related to that same process and trajectory so i've learned as much as i've done and that's the other thing i love about it it's just like it's a constant learning city and so i'm I'm pretty fortunate for that
1: so we're going to see a lot more purpose driven mission driven entrepreneurs coming out of china i'm seeing a lot more pop up Mm. Is that because the basic needs are met or is it because there's a better case for it or is it because they're more supported? What is driving that? Younger generation more like, hey, I want to change the world. What is it?
0: I think that there are elements of all of that. And I think it's really hard to draw conclusions. Like, you know, with with my charity, we have 25,000 volunteers in the city of Shanghai. Wow, there's 30 million people, right? So that big number is still a fraction of a fraction of the overall number. But the impact is probably 20 times that when we talk about who we've helped and then the, the ripples from the impact. Yeah, I, I definitely think that because Shanghai got really rich really quick and a lot of the young Shanghais benefited from that, they looked for a little bit more fulfillment and that drove them into different things. Um, then there's also the group that, yeah, the, the, the system failed them. Um, it failed them when their parents were going through the healthcare system. It failed them when they were getting their education. It, it failed them because they couldn't even breathe um, or they're worried about their children. And so they built businesses, they built products, they built tech platforms. And then, holy shit, that actually works as well as not just Shanghai. It works in Chengdu. It works in Jakarta. It works in Bangkok. And it's kind of by happenstance, but I haven't seen many, uh, pure Chinese entrepreneurs scale out of the country yet, but I definitely know what 's coming like that 's that 's for sure
1: I think that's totally Possibly. the next step I think they 're going to play a bigger role I think it 's going to be an interesting role I think there 's a lot of know how there 's a lot of drive and 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 it will help with um, not only will it help the region or the world, I think it will also help China in the long run play play a different different role. I get tired of people constantly you know portraying. China is like the villain in the Bond film because that's just so old. Well, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, because once no, you I live do. on this side, it's a bit like, you know what? I actually think the role could be super interesting and especially yeah. for young entrepreneurs coming out of this.
0: I, I, I see the same thing you do. That's also because I look past the, the geopolitics and the stereotypes of the Chinese themselves. Like they haven't done themselves any favors in their first wave of expatriates. There will be a maturation. And what, we, what you see like in global tourism is, the Chinese are definitely maturing, but there's different markets. There's these group tours. And then there's like these people who like, they're genuinely curious and they're respectful and they're just constantly learning about what's going on. And so again, it's like, it's so hard to generalize about China because there's so many types of people and there's so many people. But I definitely think there are some amazingly smart people who look at cities. That's the only like China built just gobs of cities and gobs of buildings. And they urbanized 400 million people in the time I've been there. Like bar none, nobody else knows how to do this like they do. And so their expertise are sought out now want to gives them great business models overseas, but it's also giving them pride and kind of like that their vision is now manifesting in ways they never thought. And they're taking pride in that. And Hey, they should. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. What is the rule that you
1: think really needs to be broken?
0: the easiest rule to get stuck in is that it's somebody else's responsibility to fix the problems that you see. I always have this saying that if if I should, I could and if I could, I will. It's like, if I, if I can fix a problem because I have the tools, then I should fix the problem. And so I will fix the problem because it's my responsibility. And I think we need more people that just take that proactive approach to it. Like it's, it's too easy to click like and sign a online petition and, you know, forward a meme about what we hate or what we miss or what we want or whatever. every one of us has the ability to shape the world around us and i think more people need to break that rule that it's up to other people to do it if you leave it to other people to do it then you got to live in the world that they define for you and you can't complain about it but so many people do and so i think this is a thing that has really like when i look at just pure entrepreneurs they they at the end of the day they, they just shatter that one as a start they realize like it's on me to fix this problem. It's on me to deliver the solution. It's on me to take the next step forward. And I think when it comes to social innovation and environmental and, you know, entrepreneurship and that nexus, I think it just takes a little bit more vision, a little bit more about like, this is where we should be as a people or where we should be as a community or, and and just work away at that. Um, but by sitting on your ass and letting other people try and do the work and then critiquing their work, um, that's, that's the rule that I think, yeah, it needs to be just cut in half.
1: And I love what you just said. If you have the tools or if you have the means, you have to act. I think a lot of people either lack the confidence, which is something that mm. you can work with quite well. Okay. Or or they or they lack the will. They, they just like to sit there and wallow yeah. in the hole. Somebody should do something about it. There's a, there's, a, there's a little rubbish bag somebody threw in the middle of the street. Somebody should pick that up. Or, or you can go pick that up because yeah, you're here. Just- you got two hands. The bins over there. It's just so annoying when people, when people don't do that. And, but what I think it's yeah. com- sometimes, I think it's confidence. I think people have this feeling that they can't do something about it. Always bring it back to a personal scale. Like, what can you do that's within your control? Start, start with yourself, maybe your company, yeah. maybe your community. It's not like, hey, let's, uh, let's, figure, let's figure this COVID 19 uh, thing out because that's probably way too big. But there's things you can do at a very small scale as long as you're taking action. You're never going to get the big
0: one done unless you work out the small steps. There was a guy in Singapore I knew, he was he's an environmental leader and he's like, I'm doing this waste project and blah 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 and I'm going to figure out all these, you know, how to engage consumers and la la la. And he was on Facebook when he's like, I just wish the government would give me all the information I need. What the fuck, dude? Like you go outside You go dumpster diving to figure out how many lunum cans there are. You go talk to people to figure out why they don't put their lunum cans in recycling. You have to do the work. You know, I mean, I'm in my mid forties and I used to get on a scooter late at night and I, I just follow trash people all over the city. And I'm not a small paid consultant. What the hell am I doing out there? Because you know what? That's where you learn. That's where you take your first steps you know, you don't have confidence because you don't know anything. And if you don't believe in your tools, that's because you don't appreciate what you have. Um, I think American entrepreneurs are amazing at this. Like we're waiting for the brand new Williams Sonoma tool set to open up and just, it all be there before we get started. It's like, you know, you and I were in a YouTube, like you gotta have the newest, mic. you know, you've got those people. I got the newest gear, Blah, blah, blah. but have you put out a video? Have you done have anything you done? with the, like, You've, you've got a flip-flop that's a hammer. You know, yeah. use it. But that's where Asians, I mean, this is a huge stereotype, huge generalization. Scrappy, but, I know exactly what you but mean. What I've seen in Asia is just the people there, they will pick up whatever they have, they'll use it to the best of their ability, and they'll pick up tools along the way. And they're, they don't have the face that requires them to have that beautiful set. They look at, like, I need to drive a, a nail through the wall. What would make a hammer that's near me. Something that I really appreciate. I really enjoy that about being in Asia. I used to love that about being
1: in Silicon Valley as well, but I don't see it there as much anymore. Word of the month. I just made that up. scrappy Yeah. scrappy is, is kind of- entrepreneurship the... Scrappopreneurship. <laughs> it's just I'm a lack scrap-ipore. of certain resource. It's, it's about making it. It's about, look, whatever we don't have, let's just, let's just make yeah. up for it in another way.
0: I've been talking with people about COVID around this. Like, mm. you know, this is going to go on for 18 months and either you set your own vision and take your own steps or you kind of wait for someone to tell you what you can do. And, you know, it's kind of like my wife and I would talk about like, yeah, we could wait another year. You know, do we want to wait a year or do I want to try and build a business while I'm in the States and just make progressive steps. And even if we go back to China in three months, at least I've continued my progressive steps and I've learned and I've understood and I've connected with people and issues that are here while I'm here. And I can offer up a little bit of help so that even when I'm back in China or wherever I may go, I can keep that thing going um, over time. But I could have just watched, lost the whole time.
1: You just said, you know, you're in your mid-40s. One question I like to ask is how much of a rebel are you? And is it getting worse or is it getting better?
0: (laughs) It's definitely getting worse. In a good way. No, it's it's definitely getting worse in a good and probably a bad way. Um, I'm looking at things now a little bit differently, like, I used to be really aggressive when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. When I got in my mid-30s to early 40s, I got more defensive. I, I realized like I wasted a solid seven to eight years of playing it safe. And a lot of people would argue that I've never really played it safe. But I look at what I used to do and what I got accomplished. Now I inspired my teams. And I looked at what happened the last few years. Like, you know, you saw my team implode two years ago. That was because I was trying to defend something that was smaller than... I should have been defending. I should be going after the big stuff. Yeah. I'm looking a little bit about how I'm going to tweak that once the juice kicks back in and I'm going to run faster. I won't slow down. Like I'll never go get a real job. I don't think if I do, it'll only be for like a someone who really wants me to go out and break a lot of things and push the organization and push the, the consumer in a way that's just fun for me and fascinating, but I'm actually enjoying this time where I can just learn and think and you know, reset a little bit so that when the when the starter gun goes off, I'm I'm ready for it. It's a path. We'll push forward. Have some fun.
1: Yeah. I think to have some fun is definitely necessary because there's fun in breaking somebody's rules. Rich has been an absolute yeah. pleasure to have you on. Where can people find out more about you? Because I already mentioned your YouTube channel. Where's the best way so they can find more about Richard Bruebaker? Think-
0: you know, the easiest way is just go to richbrewbaker.com and I've got all my social links up in the top right-hand corner. Love talking with other people. I love connecting. I don't care if you're a student trying to figure this stuff out or if you're a corporate raider, you know, trying to look for that next thing. Like, I'm always open to chatting with people. So thank you very much, man. It was, it's been a pleasure. I, I always enjoy the, the chit-chat with you. Uh,
1: Richard, thank you I so much. So. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Rebel Rules podcast. I really, really appreciate it. I really appreciate you taking the time And uh, spending that on this episode, I hope it was useful. I hope it sparked a couple of ideas for you. And maybe it's given you some ideas around how you too can break the rules. Remember the Rebel Rules podcast is for rule breakers, rebels, shit stirrers and innovators out there. People who are fighting the status quo and people who want to make a positive change. Like always, if you prefer watching these podcasts, you can head over to YouTube and find The Magic Sauce on YouTube. That is The Magic Sauce on YouTube. to go check out these podcasts in video form. Or you can even check out some of the other videos I've got out there which are perfect for innovators like you. Have a fantastic week. We'll be back here next week with another episode of The Rebel Rules. Rebel on.